Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. We are uh, preaching this summer on the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, and we've titled it uh, The Search uh, for Meaning. Two weeks ago, we began and we looked at uh, the author of Ecclesiastes, his main point, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And we talked about um, how can you uh, live life under the sun with a realistic view of things that is also uh, full of hope. Uh, Last week, Ray... Uh, preached on the inability of anything other than God to give us satisfaction that our souls uh, crave. Uh, So this morning, we're going to look at uh, the most well-known passage in Ecclesiastes, maybe one of the most famous passages in all the Bible, if you can uh, believe it. And that's because in 1965, a folk rock group called The Birds sang a song called Turn, 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 uh, all the way to number one on the Billboard Top 100. Think about that, a song that is basically verbatim the first eight verses of Ecclesiastes 3, a scripture song, was the number one song in the country. Um, So uh, I would love to play that song for you. I'm not going to do that, but uh, I do have a video uh, for you uh, on those first eight verses. For everything there is a season, a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to harvest, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to grieve and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to turn away. A time to seek and a time to stop searching. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and time for peace. All right, um, if you're really unable, would you stand, and uh, we'll actually read what was just in the video along with some extra verses. Ecclesiastes chapter three, starting at verse one. Now hear God's word for you this morning. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, 
A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, and that which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. This is God's holy, infallible, and inspired word. You may be seated, please. So in 2006, the editors of the uh, Concise Oxford Dictionary compiled a list of the most commonly used nouns in the English language. What are the nouns that we use more than any others in the English language? And here is their list. Um, Number 20, government. Number 16, work. Number 14, woman. Number 9, life number seven, man, number two, person, the number one word, the number one noun that we use more than any other is time. Time. We talk about time more than we talk about anything else. Think about the things that we say. We, we ask all the time, what time is it? We say, time is money. There's too much time or not enough time. We try to manage time, save time, beat time, or spend time. Time can be killed. Time can be wasted. Time can be lost. There's quality time, spare time, time off, time out, and overtime. Time can fly and time can stand still. Time, we say, waits for no one. My phone tells me every week how much time I've given to it. 30 times in 11 verses, the author of Ecclesiastes uses the word time. Any legitimate search for meaning has to account for time. Remember, we've said Ecclesiastes is part of the uh, biblical category we call wisdom literature. And so the question really is, how does the uh, biblical, how does a person have a biblically wise view of time? How does a biblically wise person think about time? So you've got a, a sermon outline. It's on the inside cover of your bulletin. Three things about time. God's sovereignty, God's gift, and God's eternity. Okay, so first, 
When the, when the biblically wise person considers time, they see God's sovereignty. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 here begins uh, with a poem. For everything there is a season and every, a time for every matter under heaven. And then what follows is uh, a, a, a 14 pairs of opposites or two groups of seven couples. Uh, in the Hebrew, the number seven is the number of completion, the number of perfection. So two groups of seven is communicating a totality. This is, this is really trying to capture all of life, everything under heaven. For everything, there is a season and a time. In fact, the first pair really covers it all, doesn't it? It says, um, there's a time to be born and a time to die. From birth to death and everything in between, for everything in life, there is a time. And we've experienced these things in our lives. It says there's a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. If you've ever tried to plant a garden, you know that you can't just throw any seed out at any time and expect it to grow. You have to respect the rhythms of spring and summer and fall and winter. There's a time, he says, to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. How quickly we can go back and forth between these seasons. You realize it takes just one phone call and you can go from laughing to weeping. It takes just one moment um, for you to go um, from dancing to mourning or from mourning uh, to dancing. Sometimes the seasons of sadness or joy are brief and other times they are long. Likewise, it says there's a time to tear and a time to sow. In the biblical world, tearing uh, or rending of one's garments was a sign of grief. It, it was an outburst of extreme sorrow. You would, you would tear your garments um, at the, the news of um, some sort of sadness. So there's a time to grieve and there's a time to move forward from grieving. Maybe you remember Job and, uh, and his three friends, how Job lost everything. He lost his health, he lost his uh, family, he lost everything that he had, all of his resources. And um, it says that Job's three friends, uh, when they heard of all the calamities that had befallen him, what did they do? It says they made an appointment together to come and show him sympathy, uh, sympathy and comfort. And when they saw him from a distance, they didn't recognize him, and they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground, and seven days and seven nights, no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. So there's a time to keep silence and a time to speak, and it takes wisdom to know when to do both of those. There's a time, it says, to seek and a time to lose. That happens to me every morning. Honey, have you seen my keys? Have you seen my wallet? Um, for all the hoarders among us, there's a time to keep and a time to throw away. There is a time, it says, to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. Honestly, no one really knows what that means. <laughs> Um, for dads of girls, 
Here's some free Father's Day advice. When that um, teenage boyfriend has the audacity to come over to your house, um, you read to him Ecclesiastes 3.5. There is a time to embrace and there is a time to refrain from embracing. See, it's in the Bible. Get your hands off my daughter. Um, even the times that can bring out the worst in humanity are included. There is a time to kill, a time to hate, a time for war. But there's also a time to heal, a time to love, and a time for peace. Now, can we just stop and acknowledge for a moment? Maybe you don't like poetry, and that's okay, but can we acknowledge just how amazing the Bible is, how beautiful it is? And I mean, this is masterful, uh, this uh, poem. But did you notice something about it, about this poem, that for everything that is included, what's the one big thing that's missing? There's, there's one thing that's not ever mentioned in this poem. God. Where is God in this poem? Where is God in the seasons and times of life? Have you noticed that people who profess to not believe in God will still kind of talk this way if you say, there is a season for everything. They'd say, yeah, yeah, there, there's, everything happens for a reason, people say, and they don't even really know what they mean when they say that. This almost kind of this yin and yang, a, a pseudo-determinism to the universe that you just have to go with the flow. Is that what this poem is saying? Is that what, what this poem is trying to communicate? Well, the author of Ecclesiastes, he, he gives us the interpretive key to understand the meaning of this poem in verse 11. He says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. God has made everything beautiful in its time. Beautiful means at the appointed time, at the right time, not sooner or later than it ought to be. Everything beautiful in its time. So the, the seasons, the times for everything under heaven, they are not random. They are sovereignly ordained by God. David says in Psalm 31, 15, my times are in your hands. Or as William Brown says, the ever constant swings of time's pendulum are suspended and held firmly by God. Nothing ever happens to you by chance. Nothing ever happens to you by chance. Nothing ever happens to you by chance. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Time serves God's sovereign purposes. God is the king of time. He is the writer of history. He regulates our minutes and our seconds. He rules all of our moments and our days. Nothing happens in life without his superintendence. Now that provides a degree of comfort, does it not? Um, because if God isn't sovereign, if he isn't in complete control of everything that happens, of every time and every season, then life truly is vanity and meaningless. In the uh, one-act play, The Search for Intelligent Signs in the Universe, uh, Lily Tomlin 
plays Trudy the Bag Lady, and in her opening monologue, she's thinking about uh, the things of life and, and everything's happening to her, and she comes to her conclusion, and she says, I wonder about my place in the vast scheme of things. Then she says, I wonder if there is a vast scheme of things. I mean, that is the fundamental question, right? Um, It's not enough for us to know that everything has a divinely ordained time. There is an instinct in us that wants to go beyond that and know how it all fits together. And that's what the author of Ecclesiastes tells us. He says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. If we could step back from our particular time or season that we find ourselves in right now, if we could, if we could kind of get God's perspective on it, then we would see a perfectly beautiful tapestry that he is weaving. We would be blown away by the beauty of it. But we are limited. We only see a fraction of life's movement and design. The, the all-embracing view of the whole of God's work is unattainable to us. But while we can't know everything uh, from the beginning to the end, God has given us what we need to know in order to put our little stories in the light of his big story. God has, has given us uh, the context of his Big story. Every person has a desire to know the big story of which they are a part. Every person is looking for some sort of meta-narrative to give meaning and purpose to their life. That's why um, the, uh, you know, QAnon and conspiracy theories uh, took so many people uh, and uh, that believe them because we're all looking for something that puts all the pieces together, right? We're all looking for something that says, this is what life's about. This is what makes sense of everything. Um, well, what is the big story? What is the meta narrative for the Christian? It is the story of salvation, the story of redemption. Galatians 4, verse 4 says, When the fullness of time came, when it was the right time, the beautiful time, God sent forth his Son. Romans 5, 6 says, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And Jesus promised that one day, at the right time, he will return to make all things new. We don't know what that time is, but we know it will happen. God brings certain seasons and times into our lives. Um, We don't know why, but we know that he has a plan. And that plan is part of his saving the world and one day making everything new. I had a seminary professor Uh, and he was a church planter in Spokane, Washington, and they were uh, one month away from their first uh, public worship service, and they uh, found out, he and his wife found out that they were pregnant with their first child, and they were so excited, obviously, and and looking forward to it, and all of a sudden, um, his wife fell ill, and she had to be rushed to the hospital. She had an ectopic pregnancy. Um, surgery was done, her life was spared, but the life of the child uh, was lost. And, uh, and this uh, professor, as he was reflecting on um, this uh, season of weeping and mourning that God had brought into uh, his life, he wrote this. He said, 
you see, the question for me in my pain is, has God given me a reason to trust him? And the answer is a resounding yes. So then apply this to my circumstance. I must learn to say, God's hand has brought this about. And that tells me everything I need to know. Because every event in my life is an expression of the personal will of him who loved me and gave his own son up for me. I don't need to make believe that it doesn't hurt. I don't have to argue, well, it's really not as bad as all that. I don't have to pretend I see how it all works for the good. But I do need to say no to defiance, to all my efforts to extort an explanation from God, to try to get him to bargain with me. Okay, God, you take away the pain and I'll be a good boy. He is my father, more perfect than any earthly father, who plans for me to live with him forever in bliss and purity that I cannot even imagine. If he thinks it's worth it for me to endure this, then I'm going to pray like crazy for him to help me do just that, because I can't do it on my own. And strange as it may sound, I am actually becoming part of the evidence God is giving to the world that he's so trustworthy by the way God is making me tender and loving and prayerful and holy, and by the way he keeps my loyalty even through such unspeakable pain. Sovereignty means that God has no abandoned projects and no forsaken children. God has no abandoned projects and no forsaken children. Even when we don't know how, he is working all things together for our good. When you believe that, then second, you can see in time God's gift. Look again at Ecclesiastes 3, verses 12 through 13. It says, I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Time is a gift from God. In every season he brings, there is an opportunity and there is an assignment. What is it? It is to be joyful and to do good, to take pleasure in what he gives and to take pleasure in our work. I think most of us engage with time in three wrong ways. One, we lament time. We can lament time. This is particularly true for um, people who are older, who look back on their life and um, think of time with regret and guilt for the things that they did or didn't do. Um, when we say things like, oh, I wish I could just go back. You know, if, if, I, if I only knew then what I know now, we lament time, and therefore it, it keeps us really from engaging in the present. Or uh, we fear time, particularly younger people who are looking forward to what's ahead of them and wondering, am I going to get into that college, or am I going to get that job, or am I going to have a family one day, or what is my career going to look like, um, how are my kids going to turn out? We fear what's ahead of us because we don't know uh, what's coming, and it paralyzes us or we waste time. 
Of all the things that God gives us, of all that he calls us to be faithful stewards over, nothing is more precious than our time. The American educator Horace Mann, he once wrote a, uh, a want ad in the newspaper. He said, lost yesterday, somewhere between sunrise and sunset, two golden hours, each set with 60 diamond minutes. No reward is offered for they are gone forever. So, let me ask you, is playing video games a waste of time? Is scrolling on Facebook a waste of time? Is playing golf a waste of time? Oh, see, now the preacher started meddling. Now we're, <laughs> it got quiet there. Is binging on podcasts or Netflix a waste of time? The answer is maybe, maybe. How do we know? The, uh, this poem has rocked a lot of people. Poem by C.T. Shedd, it's famous. Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life, twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. So you might say it's less about what you do and more about why you do it. Are you doing it for Christ? You know, it would be easy for, for me to say and maybe for you to think that in order for you to not waste your time, you have to be a missionary. You have to be constantly doing evangelism, or you have to find some great work of justice to give your life to, or, or even come work for the church, um, that that's how you don't waste your time. But the truth is, you could do all of those things and not be doing them for Jesus and be wasting your time. It's not so much about what you do as why you do it. Are you doing it for yourself or are you, are you doing it for Jesus? And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Or as Martin Luther said, the entire world should be full of service to God. Not only the churches, but also the home, the kitchen, the cellar, the workshop, and the field. So if you can play golf to the glory of God, then do it. Um, if you uh, can do those things in a way that is for Christ and his kingdom, um, then you're not wasting your time. Lamenting time, fearing time, wasting time, all three of these things keep us from receiving time as God's gift. But when we believe in the sovereignty of God, we can receive time as a gift. We can live in the moment with joy and purpose. Our lack of joy is often tied to our desire uh, and attempts to control. We're trying to control the times that we're in. But when we can finally admit that we're not in control, that's not a scary thing, it's a liberating thing. And when that happens, then your joy is not tied to the season your joy is not tied to the rhythms and circumstances of life, it's tied to God. And so you don't have to desperately try and hold on to the good times, and at the same time, you don't have to uh, fall into despair and hopelessness in the difficult times. 
Job, when he lost everything, and what did he say? The Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Or as David said, I will bless the Lord at all times. Or as the author of Ecclesiastes puts it, be joyful, do good as long as you live. Eat, drink, take pleasure in all your work. This is God's gift to you. The biblically wise person sees in time God's sovereignty, God's gift, and then third and finally, God's eternity. God's eternity. Look again at verse 14. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. That word forever, it's the same word used in verse 11 that we translate eternity. God has placed eternity, God has placed forever in man's heart. Perceive that whatever God does endures eternally. God's eternity, his foreverness, is one of his attributes that no one else shares. The rest of the Bible talks about this, for example, in Psalm 90. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Isaiah 57, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Second Peter 3 says, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. In Revelation 1, God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. It's the beginning and the end. I'm the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So just think with me for a moment here. We're going to try to, my goal in this next two minutes is to just kind of hurt your mind a little bit, okay? Trying to, to grasp this thought of, etern- of, of eternity uh, in God. So, um, We dwell in time, but time dwells in God. We dwell in time, but time dwells in God. C.S. Lewis said it like this. He said, imagine a piece of paper infinitely extended in all directions, and then take a marker and draw a short line on that piece of paper. He said, that line is time. Sheet of paper is eternity. Augustine uh, used to be asked all the time as a theologian, uh, people like to try to trick him and they'd, they'd ask him, Well, what was God doing before he created the world? Well, what was God doing before he created the world? And the stock joke was, Well, he was busy making hell for overly curious people like yourself. Um, But he knew that wasn't a sufficient enough answer. What was God doing before he created the world? Augustine's answer was, well, there was no before before. There was no then then. Because God has always existed eternally, and and, um, time is what he created with the world. We We might say that eternity is the dimension of God's own life. And time and the world were co-created. So God created the world not in time, but with time. 
God created the world not in time, but with time. Time automatically implies a succession or a progression of events. As time passes, we get older. But God is the ageless one because God is eternal. When we experience time, we really uh, only experience the past and the future. And we know this because whenever we are experiencing something and we just think, oh, if I could just bottle up this moment, right? If I, if I could just hang on to this feeling or this, this good thing uh, and, and we try to hold on to it, the second we try and do that, it's now in the past. We don't really experience the present. We only experience the past and the future. But theologians say that, that the best way to describe God is that he is eternally present. God is eternally present. In fact, in the Old Testament, when he revealed his name, he said, I am who I am. I am eternally present. Um, Jesus when he was speaking to the religious leaders, what did he tell them? Before Abraham was, I am. In Hebrews 13, verse 8, it says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus, co-eternal with God. So the author of Ecclesiastes says that eternity has been placed by God in our hearts, that there's there's something inside of us that can never be satisfied by the temporal, can never be satisfied by anything found in time. That there's, there's a, in our innermost nature, we are related to eternity. We long for transcendence. The, uh, that song, Turn, 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 that was uh, sang by the birds, it was, came out in 1965 at that that same year, uh, another uh, song came out um, by a guy named Barry McGuire. The song was called Eve of Destruction, and Barry had um, been influenced uh, by the birds, uh, but um, Barry was not a Christian, and uh, he was uh, searching for meaning in his life. And uh, even the, the, the song, The Eve of Destruction, which became a number one hit, just like the birds song did, um, was written right as the Vietnam, Vietnam War was beginning, uh, right in the, the middle of the civil rights movement. In the song, he's asking questions about um, how do I make sense of these things and, 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 and where do I find the answers? In fact, he uh, one day went over to the, the lead guitarist for the band The Mamas and the Papas. He went over to uh, his house and um, he said he always kept a huge bowl of marijuana under his coffee table. And they were getting ready to get high. And he looked over off the side of the table and he saw a book that said, Good News for Modern Men. And he thought, I'm a modern man. I'm looking for, for good news. So he took it home with him and he opened it up. He read it and the, he, the, the first page said, um, The New Testament of Jesus Christ. And he thought, they fooled me. Right? I thought this was a book. I want the Bible. I don't want... Jesus, and, and, he, and he left it on the floor of his house for um, months until he finally picked it up again, and he read it, and uh, he became a Christian, and here's what he wrote. He said, I was looking for the answer to the eve of destruction. I didn't want to be a Christian. I didn't even like them. After reading about the life of Christ, however, I realized 
He was the answer to the whole thing. The eternal Christ. A.W. Tozer says, How completely satisfying to turn from our limitations to a God who has none. For those out of Christ, time is a devouring beast. Without Jesus, time will eat you alive. But before the sons of the new creation, time crouches and purrs and licks their hands. Time is like a little kitten. Because we know the eternal one. So when we consider time and we see God's sovereignty and his gift, we see his eternity, what should we do? How should we respond? Well, the author of Ecclesiastes tells us, he says, God has done it so that people fear before him. To fear before God means to acknowledge him for who he really is, to reverence him, to be in awe of him, to, to worship him. That's where you have to let the search for meaning take you. You have to let it take you to worship. Because one day, we will spend eternity worshiping the eternal God. Time will be no more. We will be constantly living in the ever-present glory of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We will experience in fullness what we were created for, and it will be unimaginably beautiful. The hymn says, Crown him the Lord of years, the potentate of time, creator of the rolling spheres, ineffably sublime. All hail, Redeemer, hail, for thou hast died for me. Thy praise shall never, never fail throughout eternity. God, we thank you for your word that um, shows us where to find meaning. In the midst of the ebbs and flows and the rhythms and seasons and times of our lives that you bring um, to us, God, we see in it your hand. We see your plan. Though we don't see it perfectly, we know that you are working all things for our good. So would you help us to trust you? Would you help us to, to see time as your gift? To live in the moment and to look forward to eternity. We praise you, the eternal God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org.